always these words are pointing beyond themselves. It's not that they have meaning, it's that they are expressing a divine relationship, you could say. So they're not to be looked up in the dictionary, they're to be looked up in the dictionary of your heart. Welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello listeners and fellow travellers and welcome to the second episode of our Interpretation and Translation series. And today I'm, I'm joined by Dr. Neil Douglas Klotz, who's been very gracious to let us just call him Neil. But I, he was the, it was his work that was the catalyst for this entire thing in terms of the pushing it over that edge that I knew I had to jump into this first and foremost. And I've, and I've had a chance to come upon his work early or recently, uh, compiled with the other things that we'd mentioned in the first episode in terms of where do we go with some of these ideas and how do we take some of these translations and potential mistranslations or at least not enough. You know, we, we try hard not to get away from, to get away from the good or bad side. Before we bring them on, I want to start out with a prayer. I want to pray for this. We don't typically do this, uh, but I thought this was appropriate in terms of uh, this particular episode as we get started. So if you'd be so kind as to join me, I'm going to start us off with a prayer, and then we'll introduce Neil, and we'll go from there. Avum debashmaya, nitkadish shemok, te malkutach, nehwe zebyanak akana, Debashmaya, Afbar Ah, Havlan Lakma, Dasun Kanan Yaman, Washboklan Chaubain Wakdachain, Aikanadaf Hanan, Shwakno Chailabain, Wela Tachalan Lenisuna, Ela Patsan Minbisha, Mitul de Loche Malkuta, Wahaila. Wateshbukta, la alam almin amen, la alam almin amen. Now, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to know that what I just said and what the prayer that I just gave you all uh, was indeed not in English. And if you're like me, a little bit of an academic and a dork, you're like, hey, uh, let me see if I can guess which one that is and what it is that he even said and what is it that you might have mentioned. It was actually a prayer. Uh, in some good guesses uh, would be would be languages like Arabic or potentially Hebrew. Or for those of you that uh, a little bit more on the pop culture side, you may have thought it sounds something like Klingon or Dothraki. And uh, while all of those have been wrong, they've been really good guesses because what I just said was the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, the original words of Jesus. And that I thought as part of this kind of the origin story, let's go back to that point in time and find out what did Jesus actually say. And I was turned on to, 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 Neil's, to Neil's work from my aunt. Uh, she's part of this journey with mine, my Aunt Carol, who I'm very fond of. She's uh, the closest thing I have to a mom. And um, she said one day, hey, you should really listen to this guy. I mean, she loves his work. And I was very fortunate that I could uh, not only engage in his work, but in the method I got to. You see, I didn't just come across those words. I, didn't, I don't speak Aramaic. I learned how to memorize that prayer because I listened to his book, uh, Original Prayers on Audible. I'm very fortunate in some ways. I get about an hour a day to sit on a mountain bike and, and ride and have nothing in the world to get in my way, as I was joking with Neil before we started. Uh, if I try to read a real book in real life at home, I have three kids and a wife who see me sitting there doing, quote unquote, nothing, and uh, there's something else I could be doing, and if you would be so kind. And so to stay uninterrupted, and also the benefit, the beauty is, I was, again, joking with Neil, I feel like I know him because he's been in my ear quite a bit. <laughs> quite a, I've been listening because his audiobook is is from him. And so with that audiobook, it allowed me to not only listen the first time through and kind of get exposed, because these words, as you just have heard, different. And you know, there's glutteral sounds. There's nothing made sense except maybe that last word you may have caught, amen. But the rest of that, you're kind of like, what did he say? But there was that, there's that, there's that vibration, there's that harmony, there's a, it is a different way of engaging. And this again gets into the idea of around translation interpretation. And so I was able to, to, to not only memorize that, but then also get a chance to go back and listen to the book I'm on the, the fourth time or so. Uh, okay, what do they mean by these words? And only, and only that, what I loved about what we were just talking about is what's possible as well, that when you break, go down to these baseline words, 
that make up the Lord's Prayer, you, you, it opens up like a flower so many things that we could, we could bring from that. And it's not to dismiss the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that we've all come to, to know and love. Um, well, maybe not love as much as we used to, but, but it becomes, because those words can be limiting. Simple words now can divide us simply as the second word, Father. Just that genderized aspect of God is enough to get people to stop and divide. So what else is there and what else is out there? So after kind of having him in my ear, I just took the shot that we like to do in, in this world, which I love about podcasting now and technology. I sent him an email, said, hey, here's the here's the gist. Would love to have you on. And, and Neil was so kind as to say yes. And so with that introduction, as we dive into this and some other things, I do want to say one other thing about some of the stuff that he does in terms of an author, which I think is really pointing to this, and that is music and chanting. And we hope to talk about that later. Part of what helped me understand and memorize this was the ability to listen to the music that he has created, the chanting, the embodiment. And it's not just, it's not just finding out the word. We're not here just to, okay, what's the right word, Sean? Give me the right word. It's more than that. Open, opening our minds to more than the word can mean outside of its concrete aspects. What else can you bring from that? Can you draw from that? And I think this is where it really allows us to open up and let interpretation and translation become a benefit, not a hindrance to what we do. So with that, Neil, thank you so much for coming on and being a part of the tent. Thank you, Sean. You, uh, you did pretty well with the prayer. Um, thank you. <laughs> must, must come from the mountain biking that it improves <laughs> your, uh, your breathing capacity. See, uh, so that's yeah, so, got to help. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, it was kind of like this. And Neil didn't know I was going to do that. I didn't tell him. And so it does feel kind of odd in front of the teacher. You're like, oh, my gosh, should I get that right? And how much <laughs> of that did I get right? And all that kind of stuff. And I, so I guess it's one of those things to start with. Um, like you said, you've been doing this for 30 years. Tell us kind of a little bit about that, uh, the origin story around the world for, and where, and, and maybe die, kind of where your mind goes in this in terms of interpretation. And because and, and, we could spend a lot of time on this, I know. But uh, where, where would you like to start? I don't know how long that that sounds true <laughs> slash audible series is, but it's hours and hours. And so, <laughs> you know, there's a couple things that people often ask me. Um, maybe I can start with those now because I put them in a frequently asked questions section at the beginning of my new book coming out in a week or so. This is the shameless plug part. Oh, it's and okay. Maybe another toward the end. Plug, plug, plug. Revelations of the Aramaic Jesus. But uh, people often ask me, you know, so. So what is what is really the literal translation of the Aramaic, uh, let's say the Aramaic Lord's Prayer? And I'm sorry to have to tell them that the whole notion of a literal one word for word translation uh, is foreign to ancient Semitic languages, and particularly to the times in which Jesus lived, and even the times of the Hebrew prophets before him, because Hebrew, Aramaic, and even classical Arabic, uh, as the Quran is written in five, six hundred years later, these are languages, so-called Semitic languages, that, that have a, a root and pattern system. So without getting too technical about the whole thing, this means that they're meant to be interpreted on a number of different levels, especially if the words are spoken by a prophet a wise person, whatever you'd call it today, a mystic, a wise one. I mean, it's not like you'd, you'd interpret a number of levels, well, go down to the corner and turn right and then do this and that. That's a different level. But when a person is speaking a prayer or a series of sayings like the Beatitudes, as Jesus does in Matthew and Luke, then they are heard on these different levels. And so it's not so much that we have uh, wrong interpretations of Jesus in the Gospels, although we do have quite a few significant ones, but mostly we have very, very limited translations and interpretations of his words. Now, we can get into all sorts of reasons for that, but uh, that may come later. I'll just throw out a few things here for people. People often ask me, well, how do we know what Jesus actually said? Well, we don't really. Uh, but that doesn't mean he said nothing, <laughs> which is basically almost 
the default historical Jesus approach if you read some of these books. The Western scholarship of the last 20, 30 years presumed, for some odd reason, that the more often a saying occurred in the Gospels, the more likely it was that Jesus said it. That, of course, is logically nonsense. Because, you know, as you would or as I would if we're speaking to people, uh, you might vary things. For instance, each time, maybe you said the Beatitudes this way once, you said these blessed are sayings one way, and another time you said them another, way, another time. So the default position of Aramaic Christians, uh, we, who are still around today, still alive, still worshiping today, is that, okay, it isn't an either or, or nothing, but maybe he said both. So, and this is why even including, say, the Lord's Prayer or the Jesus's Prayer, you have two different lines about forgiveness. One occurs in Matthew, the other occurs in Luke. Um, so the Aramaic Christians, they, they put them both together and chant both. Uh, they chant elements of both, you could say, so that they're including both. So the idea is, you know, let's include it all because there should be wisdom there. Right. It kind of reminds me of the end of John where it's like, and of all the stories could never, you know, fill up all the libraries, not just yeah. for Jesus, but for yeah. everything, yeah, for yeah. everybody, right? There's just, absolutely. There's just, and then I think it becomes a little bit of the epiphatic of like, how do you begin to use words to even describe some of these basic things that we experience, let alone the divine and, and prophetic stuff. So, so one of the things, as you were talking, that got me thinking about, um, and I appreciate you giving that qualifier around that, because there's always the, there's the part, I think all of us, I have it, the Google part was like, well, let me find out, is this really the words? Are these, you know, yeah. is this exactly the Aramaic? How do we know? And who told you? And it made me think of, you know, I, our podcast audience is a lot of people from uh, North America and the UK. So I think in that, in that realm, like in my world, um, you know, I've heard, I've heard word methane my whole life and I go to the UK and it's methane or you know, aluminum versus aluminum. So something as simple yeah, as well, this. The that, sure. Right. Yeah. So it could be, so I think to your point is it, you, you can get so narrowed down on this, you know, what these things mean that you lose sight of the, the picture. And I think that's a great context around, you know, just repet, repetition of the same phrase doesn't necessarily mean authenticity as well. But one of the things that when I was re listening to your book or, or reading from you that stood out to me more than anything was the idea that you could capture all of the prayer, all and I'm going to use this loosely, but at least the intention, or you could, if, if nobody else remembers anything else that I just said, or if they don't go off and memorize it, you know, what's this, what's the anchor point, for, if you will? And it's that first word, uh, you know, avum, and not just the word itself, um, but, it, and, and I'd love for you to kind of obviously to, to jump on this and go further, but what stood out to me was not just that it's, it's this, it could be more than just father, and it is more than just father, but the actual onomatopoeic for laughing it's the best word i can come up with in english the word buzz you know that we know this we don't have that in we don't have that embodiment aspect of the english language you know the germanic languages just don't have that there's some you know there's some hard sounds but it's not representational of the word itself like you know and even buzz it just happens to be in there uh, and it made me think of the word moist which there may be a lot of english listeners and i don't know if you know anybody that i and i do you say a word like that and they kind of cringe because there's some sort of physical reaction because maybe this sounds like what moist feels like when you touch it. So now I'm feeling the word, not just saying the word. And so in the spirit of that, uh, that, that boom, when you talk about it in the word, you know, and how it's that, it's not A-B-W-O-O-N is the right way to spell it. You're trying to figure out some sort of way to embody that boom, that humming, that vibration. And then if you don't remember anything else, just that little anchor at the bottom as far as this is what it encompasses can you talk a little bit about that and sure yeah i'd be happy to you know you've really got these these multiple sounds as i pointed out in my very first book which you've read sean prayers of the cosmos ah is pointing towards that source whatever we call that source which is beyond our ideas or concepts or theologies. This is this is the ancient Semitic way of looking at it. Um, it's a sound. You, you talked about apophatic in terms of theology. The, the whole thing is apophatic. Always, these words are pointing beyond themselves. It's not that they have meaning. It's that they are expressing a divine relationship. You could say. So they're not to be looked up in the dictionary. They're to be looked up in the dictionary of your heart, really. 
So this ah is pointing towards the, you could say the source, the mystery, uh, God, so to speak. Uh, this birthing sound uh, really means something is coming to us from this source. You know, something is being created in this moment. The oo sound appears throughout the Semitic languages as a sort of doorway sound. Things come and go between the unseen reality, the reality of God, so to speak, or the angels, and this reality. And so this is the doorway through which you could say experiences, beings, energies uh, come in and go out and affect our reality, that is our time and space reality. And then n is what is happening now. It's a good way to remember it. So this, you could say that this breath from the source is happening and creating something new now. There's simply the first word, as you mentioned, abun, points back and really contains the whole prayer, but it points to, you know, the whole notion of creation always going on in the Semitic traditions. This is from the Hebrew Bible into Jesus's teachings, even goes into the Quran later, that creation didn't just happen a long time ago at the time of the Big Bang or whatever. This is a process that is all, that is always going on in which we can participate, or at least we can experience ourselves participating uh, at any particular moment. So, Avun, you know, originally I translated it, O Birther, Father, Mother of the Cosmos. Uh, today, which is what I've done in my new book, I translated it more as a process. These are more, these are more processes. They are becomings rather than beings. O birthing, fathering, mothering, parenting, you could say, from whom we receive a breath that is that we can see and experience and perceive around us in everything that has the nature of light. And what has the nature of light? Well, everything, really, if you listen to Einstein. So it's, it's all light on one level. So we, when we have our eyes and our senses open to perceive that, then heaven is here. Then we experience that heaven now, rather than later, rather than at some other time. Now, that's a very different animal than than what it became. Absolutely, I, I agree. So, <laughs> this, hence the starting point. <laughs> right, right. And, it's, and so, for, some, for a lot of us, this is, I would say, <clears throat> we're coming to this late. You know, we, 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 our version of things was the other one. You know, I always look at it now as our father, so it's above me and it's some sort of authority figure who art in heaven, which is over there. You know, like you, and you said, none of that is here. It's all projected, and even if we don't recognize it, it's projected over there. So I wanted to, if you, if you don't mind, I know it's anecdotal, but I would really love to dive a little bit in from you personally, uh, and you can tell the audience a little bit about, or the listeners a little bit about your your background and growing up in Chicago and having a, a you know, going to Christian schools. It, it, but when you, can you tell me about when you kind of, when it started to like make sense to you, what was that like? And how did it, how did you first kind of unpack that? And then, because because there's there's a transition period. There's a you know you get exposed to something, and it's kind of like, whoa, what if it isn't just our father? I mean, or more than that, could it be? Should it be more than that? It should be. But am I doing something wrong? But is this you know, is this not you know is this nonsense? Is this somebody else's opinion? I mean, what if it's not a father? Is, you know, is, should it be mother? Is it just mother? Maybe kind of give us a little idea of what you yeah all that and how you kind of helped unpack that because you didn't. You didn't start out this way, as far as like as far as this goes. But you've obviously well, I of... started out as a child, as the old yes, joke yes, goes. Yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I did grow up hearing different languages in my in my birth family, and you know, I of course English, American English, um, some German, some Polish, some Yiddish. So all this mixes in the child consciousness, you could say, and perhaps makes it easier to learn languages. It seems to have, in my case, at least up to a certain age, I'll say. The, the clearest remembrance I have of my parents is that they, uh, you know, I remember, I have many things, but they, they used to tell us, okay, if the, when the DDT trucks come around in the street, you know, spraying anti-mosquitoes, this was in the 50s, uh, then you run home and, and close all the windows and then don't go out until the, the fog disperses. And all my friends, meanwhile, were out, you know, playing in the, in the DDT fog. So you can imagine what that did. 
So my parents were very much involved with uh, Rachel Carson's in early environmental movement. Uh, they were involved with organic farming and gardening. You know, Rich, Richard, I think Richard or Robert Rodale, I can't remember. We had a quite a large, smallish, a large, very large garden or a small organic farm, you whatever want to look like, where we grew a lot of our food. We just basically took over a vacant lot next door to our house and, uh, and tilled the whole thing and planted and, you know, and all of that. So we were really into that. And then my parents were also, you could say, very free thinkers. And in addition to uh, attending church in their local community, because that allowed them to sort of blend in a little bit better, uh, they were interested in Edgar Casey who was an early American psychic. But since my father worked as a chiropractor in Illinois, uh, and one of the early ones, we had to sort of blend, we had to try to blend. We must blend <laughs> as best as possible. So as you mentioned, I went to these uh, evangelical elementary school and learned Luther's small catechism by heart and large sections of the Hebrew Bible in order to go through confirmation. So all of that, you know, but. In with all of that, um, I had a very deep experience of Jesus as a child. I can't even put it into words, really. And I knew that there was something more there than what I was being taught, you know, at least in school, because the, you know, the religion was in the school. I didn't get the religion at home. So that may make a difference. I had this sort of inner, outer, split sort of thing, which <laughs> so I think some people have. In my case, it actually benefited me so that when I finally went to university, uh, I went as far away as I possibly could from Christianity. And, you know, I was involved with the anti-war movement in the 70s and uh, became then later an investigative reporter in New York City and learned how to research uh, government bureaus and develop informed sources whom you never disclosed and all these things like that that happened before the internet happened and made it a lot easier to do things but also journalists tend to get more lazy so i had this bent of you know wanting to find out wanting to investigate wanting to you know figure out what's really going on you know i was also working at some points as an editor because you learn these different language skills so i worked as an editor book editor and at one point, I was editing the book of a person, uh, an American Sufi, actually, who said that he said, two things I want to do before I die. I want to start these, you could say, circle dances that would help bring people together. They're called Dances of Universal Peace. And I also want to learn to pray the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And for some reason, that struck me. It was one of those moments where I was just sort of this flash, you know, you get of things. And I said, well, what's that about? You know, I, I know something about Christianity. So how would that make a difference? He felt, you know, that the chanting of the words would connect a person uh, very deeply to Yeshua, that is Jesus's own being. And the more I researched, the more I found out, well, this is the old Middle Eastern tradition, actually, from Hebrew. This is why there's so much chanted a liturgy in Hebrew in the Jewish tradition today. It's it's also in the Aramaic Christian tradition, and then of course it later comes into into Islam, into Arabic. That the chanting, the sounding, the breathing of the words themselves connects one to something more than a a book meaning or more than a word for word meaning. And you know, people do this. You know, contemplative prayer today, they meditate on various words. Uh, Centering prayer. I think they're using Maranatha, which isn't the best phrase to use, frankly, but uh, there's many other better Aramaic ones they could use. But anyway, so, uh, so there is this something about the breathing, the feeling of the sound that connects one to the feeling of the person who said these words. That is possible. That, that's, that's not airy fairy stuff. Uh, that's not New Age, you know, flight into light stuff. According to the ancient peoples, and this, this is where we have to read Jesus from, you know, the past, the present, and the future are all connected. The past, they're, they're all connected. It's not a linear thing. So that at some point, you know, everything is, you could say, moving together. 
And the way of viewing that that Yeshua would have used is that, okay, here I am, we're all together, you and I, Sean, we're, we're moving together, we're having this podcast, how fabulous, you know. So we're moving in this reality right now, and ahead of us, ahead of us are our ancestors, those who went before us, as we sometimes say, and they're moving too. And then behind us are my children and my children's children, and they're moving too, the ones that weren't born yet, aren't born yet, they're behind me, they're in the unseen, I can't see them, rather than with me here. So we're all moving together, this past, present, future. And our job is, according to the ancient Semitic peoples, who were basically nomadic, that's where these languages come from, or at least early on when the languages were developed, they were nomadic without settled, uh, you know, could say settled places. So that our, our job is to follow it, the best of those who are before us the best of those who are ahead of us, not the worst, <laughs> which is what tends to happen today, but we follow the best, the most inspiring, the wisest ones ahead of us in the unseen as well, because the ancestors are still there, you could say. And then, you know, where is God? Where, where does this place God? Well, God is all around us. It's a different, it's a very different cosmology than what we have today, which is basically just a sort of secular cosmology. It's also a very different, if I can use the theological term, cosmogony, which means where we came from. Where we came from is also where we're going. And according to the ancient Semitic peoples, we come from, well, as Matt Fox said in his, his seminal book, Original Blessing, we come from original blessing. We don't come from original sin. That's a later idea of St. Augustine. But we come from the sense of blessing, and God, so to speak, as Genesis tells us in Hebrew, speaks the universe into existence. Because remember it in the seven days and all of that good stuff. It says, and God said this, and God said that, and God said this. So, well, but God isn't just like speaking, you know, thought bubbles above himself or himself or herself or itself. Th these different words for saying in Hebrew that we find in Genesis really mean to radiate to carve, to engrave, you know, it's like these are cosmological, almost, you could say, forces, really, in which these seven periods of illumination, which is what the seven days are, are coming into existence. And so when God speaks, his speaking is what is speaking through us when we are connected to that original blessing. And this is where language comes from. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet or the Aramaic alphabet, which are basically the same, they are not just scribbles on a page, but they are sounds. And even more, they are energies. And I, I'm not speaking, trying to make it too secular. They are more like beings, really. Uh, beings that are coming into existence. Now, how does that work? Well, the first human beings, according to the nomads, when we speak, we're making a connection with what is around us. Okay, here's a tree. So what's the word for, you know, so I'm speaking something that connects my breath to the what I feel as the breath of the tree. This is very important. It's a whole different way of looking at not only our own, ourself, our individual self, but a way of looking at nature, our planet, everything like that. Uh, and Jesus is all over this, you could say, in, if you view his, his words through Aramaic, I mean, most of his images are images taken from nature. All of his teaching, all of his major teaching happens in nature rather than in buildings. If you look closely, he's always pointing people back to, to, to nature. I mean, I know you want to go in the Lord's Prayer, but I want to... No, no, no. No, this is the Lord's Prayer, like you said. This, I mean, this... it is in some ways. These are some of the things that people really misunder... Some people have found... Uh, confusing, and others have even found sort of abusive. Yeah. For instance, one of the sayings of Jesus, uh, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, an evil tree bears evil fruit. You know this one. The word for good means ripe, R-I-P-E, in the right time at the right place. And evil just means unripe. So what he's saying is the ripe tree bears ripe, fru ripe fruit. An unripe tree, you know, you're not going to want to eat it, really. So live your life 
like you see these trees live ripely live in the moment live live in what is appropriate for the moment connecting to source that's what ripeness is it's connecting to our source allah or god in this moment to determine what's this moment all about what's mine to do in life these are important questions in in that ties so for me that was one of the more poignant uh, things that you'd mentioned about in back to translation and so in to be quite honest with you uh, i would i would invite people if they want to dig into the actual aspects of the lord's prayer and what the words mean and everything else i would point them to your work and i think this is a much better use of the time to be honest uh, but in that vein that perception of ripeness versus right and wrong really is kind of the, this that was the uh, that and some other work with my friend alexander were part of the emphasis for why i want to do dualism because that that language of good and bad becomes so concrete that when you look at it and you change that perception of what you're talking about, um, and I eat avocados all the time, I think <laughs> I'm always waiting for for it to be ripe. But that's relative not only to the moment, but it's also relative to my interpretation of that moment and that value. It has nothing to do with whether or not it makes the tree good or not, or whether or not it makes avocados good or not, and it doesn't make any difference to the composting worms that I use when I, when it's too ripe. And, I, and but for them it's just right because they couldn't they couldn't break it down when it first comes off the tree and it's super green and neither can I but that's not at that point it's not the time for that and so I think it really ties in what you're saying about that it's not a linear thing it's just it's just a relativity it's relative to those things and so instead of looking at things in the instead of the Bible being a hammer or you know some sort of sword or some sort of source of authority it's more of that perceptive reality of could it just not be the right time it's not a good or bad thing. It's just, and, and so to me, you know, that that particular aspect of it, and then changing, not just for the sake of the Lord's Prayer that one time, but like you said, throughout the context and starting to read and, 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 and like you said, comprehend whatever that happens, that, that application happens to be relative to that moment and that, and that context of that, of that verbiage, again, not in good or bad. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes a little bit around a time for everything, just this isn't the time to go to school yet. This isn't, you've got to wait till you're a little bit older This or your school time is done. And so I, I so in, in that vein, because um, the other aspect of this, is I think we can build upon that. What I'd love to talk to you about or have you expressed to us was in the spirit of that, not only the context, the words, the perception, but the register. I mean, the music that you do and the chanting, uh, again, my friend Alexander said this, and I didn't know this around, there was a lot of text that was considered sacred and would not be uh, would not be would not would be frowned upon to say the least if it was just spoken, just you know Jesus wept or, you know you know blessed be the whatever or you know pick your verse it's just kind of staccato it's just kind of there and it's hard to memorize sometimes but it's and it it, it lacks I don't want to say stickiness but it, it lacks that doesn't like hit you like a song does or like a chant does or a murmuring in that physical and I know you have a tremendous amount of experience because you're a musician as well and as I'd mentioned and. But you've also seen this happen in people in real life. You've seen it happen with people in in, in spirit. And coming from somebody who's a, who's grew up, don't move, don't you know, don't show emotion, don't dance, don't you know, typical, you know, in that sense, th this has been one of the areas that's really required me to kind of really break out and go further into what's possible. But can you talk or start to talk a little bit about how that changes and what your recommendations would be and how that how that change of the of the of the way that you do that where you engage in some of these ideas can even change what they mean to you ultimately. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, in, in my books, I, I put in these body prayers or contemplative prayers, whatever you want to call it, in, in with the unpacking of the Aramaic text. So the best way to begin for people is to breathe with the words, sound them out as best as possible, trust that, you know, spirit will tune you in, so to speak, your own your own rucha, as Jesus would call it, will tune you into approximately the right sound. You can hear some things online, of course. Don't get too tied. Don't get too tied up about the right pronunciation of the Aramaic, because even different Aramaic Christians today pronounce their Aramaic differently. This is 
although they have almost no theological differences between them, the different Aramaic Christian denominations, they have differences of pronunciation. And I won't go into why that is. Uh, some of it, however, is historically linked to various traumas that they experience. So this is really, this is like as charged an issue for some Aramaic Christians about how you pronounce your Aramaic as, as certain theological issues are for Western Christians. So, you know, I begin, I begin my work, you know, breathing with the word, sounding the word, you could say on one note, intoning it, whatever that note is, doesn't matter, high, low, C, F, G, you know, that's, you don't count that. So you feel a note that resonates the best in your own chest, the middle of your chest, your heart area, you could say, because this is the way it would have been done. The heart is the main thing uh, in the ancient Semitic, you could say, cosmology. Um, you know, the head is almost there's, there isn't even a, a good word for mind, actually, in the Semitic languages. Uh, but the heart, they all have a word for heart. And the heart is extremely important, not just as a physical organ, but as, you could say, the center of one's love, passion, compassion, all these things. I mean, otherwise, you know, you know, why did, why did the Egyptians embalm the heart and toss the brain away? I mean, well, because the, the ancient Egyptians are Semites too. So they had the same sort of attitude heart is it and then they, they you know the Egyptians would weigh the heart so long story short you want to have the sound be felt here in the heart breathed and toned and then you know just feel feel from there uh, this that I just described is exactly the way that all these melodies came to me I'm not a musician by training at all uh, I did long retreats uh, personal retreats with the Aramaic words as I was doing some of the books, doing just the process I mentioned, breathing and toning, breathing and toning, con uh, contemplation or meditation, if you want to call it that. And then these melodies, I would hear melodies. And when this first began to happen to me, I asked, I, you know, I asked, because it's good to ask, um, is this just for me, for my own, you know, personal uh, devotional life or is this something to be shared and the message I got was no share this see what happens so that's what I did and it's basically spread around the world so um, it's obviously something uh, that people use now many people use these melodies with Taizé music or you know in between silence and all of this so I mean you you mentioned this thing about being still being you know not moving but actually the Semitic languages and Aramaic is included in this don't have a word that means to be motionless they don't have a word that means to stand still sit still or be still so what does the Hebrew scripture say when it says be still and know that I am God it says be quiet and listen be quiet and listen, you know. So this doesn't mean you're supposed to, you know, root yourself into one spot. All of the verbs in Aramaic, and I hear I'm getting technical, they all have to do with movement, with process. They don't have to do with any static states from a linguistic point of view, that I am this and I am only this, or this only means this and it only means this. No, this is a changing, evolving, you could say evolutionary unfolding that we're experiencing in this life. It's still up to us to do the, you could say, to do the thing that is ripe for us in the moment. It doesn't mean that there aren't unripe things. There are very unripe things, for instance, in my world, uh, in my life, you know, things I thought were, were totally fine 20 years ago. Now I realize, oh, that was an idiot. That was an idiotic thing to do. <laughs> you know, why was I doing that back then? So I'm not going to do that anymore. And the same thing with our world. There were things that human species, uh, we thought was great 50, 100 years ago. Not so much now. It's not to say there, are, there aren't unripe things and it's all relative and it doesn't matter. And, you know, it's all just a language game and all these other things one hears. It, this is, you know, this is not, it's not that. Uh, it's something very different. So I think this may actually help a little bit because it, sometimes you can say this stuff and it gets a little bit, uh, I don't want to say flowers and unicorn, but if, it's, if there's no bad, then everything's just unripe. It, that may have a hard, hard time playing that up against some of the more 
um, difficult things we go through and that we've seen and that's out there that we can't even turn on the news without hearing something that you're like, well, well there's, you know, there's, there's unripe in terms of not yet ripe, as you mentioned, the avocado mm-hmm. here, by the time we get avocados, I think they're from Spain, mostly, you know, it's like one day they're unripe and the next day, bang, they've gone past it. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you catch it just at the right moment. So there's, there's too green, there's not yet ripe. And then there's past its sell-by date, as we say here, it's gone fully rotten. It's ready for compost. Send it to the worms. You know, this behavior, that activity, whatever, you know, put it in the, in the compost bin. Let the worms have it. it, it so for, for that, from that perspective, so how, do, how does the, what's you say this, I don't want to say Semitic, I don't want to put a wrong perspective on it. So how, what do we do with the things that we would tend to lean towards that are evil? I mean, that we, that we see something, something super, it can be something super dramatic or something does a single thing. How do we, how can language or how can that comparison, where does that play out in that context? What you say? Well, Jesus asks us, again, looking at the Aramaic, to be aware of this ripeness, this moment, this momentary connection in the heart with source, Allah, as he calls it, and that the heart has something that's called shraddha. It has a direction. It's like a GPS. You know, it will lead, if you do this, if you connect and breathe, not to your individual small self, but to what Jesus calls rucha, that is the breath, which is also, so to speak, I'll use the word soul, because this is what I use in my books, if we connect to soul, which is the breath that is always on, it came from before, before my physical birth, and it's going to extend after. This is what Jesus calls rucha. This is very important. My individual self is like a held breath in Aramaic. That is, I'm, this, there's a breath that's held in this body, this physical body, for however many years in time and space that I have here. And this breath is called nafsha. And that's, what's tr- that's what you could translate it as self. So throughout the Gospels, these words are, how would we say, not only falsely, but indiscriminately translated, both from the Greek, which has its equivalence to these words that I mentioned, and in the Aramaic. And it's, it's translated all higgly-piggly, all chaotically. So you can't tell what the heck he's talking about. But really, from this point of view I'm talking about, this breath that is always on, the soul breath, the big breath, we live inside of that. I mean, we need to let our soul save us. We don't have to save our soul. From Jesus's point of view, uh, this, you know, it's, it's not like I have a little thing inside of me. I've got to sort of like believe some right concept in order to save this thing. No, he doesn't talk about that. He says, let your soul redeem you. And he doesn't say, you know, believe in me. He says, believe along with me. Or believe, that is, believe like I believe or believe within me. You know, so you could believe within Jesus's atmosphere with his with his, you could say, his, his feeling, his way. Well, now we'd call it his spirituality. Feel within, within him. It's like a gestalt, if you know about anything about psychology. It's a spiritual gestalt that the ancient Semites were using. So you place yourself as though within the being of a prophet or you know, a wise person and, and do, okay, do the prayer like you feel them doing it. Imagine them doing it with you. That's what he's talking about, you know. This is why he says, pray Beshemeh, in my atmosphere, within my atmosphere. You could, you could translate it in my name, that's not terrible, because if you say Jesus' name, that does something too, um, but then it, often a lot of different odd concepts get attached to that. So that's, that's a different level of things. In, in, I kind of feel compelled, I don't know if it's a great segue, but um, the third line of the prayer, Tete Malkutach, that the... Malkutah, that it's a feminine gendered word and that it's translated as, you know, thy kingdom come or thy kingdom. And which in which is, you know, king's domain, king dominion, and is and is male gendered. And you'd mentioned in your book, if I recall correctly, that pretty much all the gendered words are either neutralized or gone totally masculine, like down the line. And so I just I felt a bit of com- around the idea of translation interpretation is to encourage people 
And, and, and what does that mean? You're like, okay, that's so we have, what does it mean to me? And it may, I'd like for you to kind of maybe add your two cents to it. For me, what it made me do is a little bit of forcing that to look at it differently, to not look at it from a male dominated standpoint, to not look at it from a, a governorship standpoint, that it's not the Holy Father and it's, and it's just Father. And we never think of it outside of that, that it would push me to think, well, what, what would a queendom look like? You know, what would, what in, 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 in you know, what would that look like? And what a kingdom, and is that even the thing? Is it more, but maybe just kind of talk about the gendered side. I mean, in, in terms of pronouns and, and yeah, yeah, I know people are interested in this. I have a whole section on this in my new book. Um, Malkuta, yes, definitely feminine gendered. Really, as I translated even in Prayers of the Cosmos, it's really more about empowerment with a vision that's attached to it. So it's I translate it as the I can of the cosmos. Uh, it's beyond, it's actually beyond gender, although it's gendered feminine. There are many, many feminine gendered words that Yeshua uses. Uh, the word I just mentioned, Rucha, is one of them. But uh, Malkuta, parables, he's always talking about Malkuta, Malkuta, Malkuta. What is, what is it? Well, it's, again, as it sometimes is translated, he says, the kingdom of the, this, the Malkuta, the Allaha, is um, either among you or within you depending on which version you read. And the thing is that in Aramaic, he, he always said both, because there's only one preposition that means both within and among. You know, it's a no-brainer. So he means both. It's within us, within me, but it's also among us. It's around me. Again, you can hear resonances of the Gospel of Thomas here, too, if you know a bit about that. So uh, how does that arise? Well, this empowerment, you could say, which would be another word for Malkuta, that comes from the source, from Allah, it's part of our natural heritage. It's part of our soul heritage. We were born with the divine image, as Genesis talks about. And so it's up to us to sort of let it come. That's what it says, Tete Malkuta, let your Malkuta come through us. That we walk as you know, we walk as kings and queens, or beyond kings and queens. Actually, all this king and queen stuff is sort of medieval feudalism imposed back over onto ancient Semitic languages. So I don't even use that anymore at at this point. Um, it's important about the whole gender issue to know, and I often point this out, that Genesis one twenty six twenty seven said that the first human being. It even read it in your translations. Genesis one twenty six twenty seven says. Uh, God created the first human being, one being, male and female. That means there's one being that's male and female. And even the ancient Jewish Midrash went into this and the Kabbalah and all this stuff too. So there is already an intergendered notion of the, of the human self in, in Genesis. It's or, and it's not just that it's an either or, but there is a gradation between now, this plays out later in that if you look in the book of Sirach, which is a intertestamental book between the two testaments, so to speak, uh, wisdom, holy wisdom, is described as word. That is a, a speaking, actually a conversation. So there's a conversation with God, so to speak, that's going on all the time when we listen, okay, we hear it. And so then this takes us to John 1, where you have, in the beginning was this melta, as it says in Aramaic. In the beginning was this conversation, this word, which is wisdom, which is holy wisdom, which is Sophia, which is clearly feminine and reaches back to Proverbs. So how could people think that Jesus was an embodiment of a feminine archetype? Well, because they weren't that bothered about these things at that point. They already presumed that the human self is has both male and female within it. So for this guy to come and embody a feminine archetype, no problem. You know, it's not like it's so fraught today. I mean, even if you look in a decent etymological dictionary, and I don't want to go on and on about this, um, the word gender is not used to indicate anything about maleness and femaleness until about the 15th century. Before, the word gender in English just means a type or a sort or a variety of something. You know, so even today, these words have developed meanings that tend to split people apart. 
or to, to split humans from nature or to define, well, this is only male and this is only female and this is only that and this is only that. So um, the ancient Semites were much more relaxed about all this and uh, especially in the nomadic times from which these languages arose. Well, I, I, these are one of those kind of conversations that were there's never a good point to stop or that I ever would want to, but uh, you know, time is what it is. And I think it's a good place to kind of land the plane a little bit. My hope for the listeners out there is, is it does as it has me, not only from before, but obviously this conversation a bit, just pushing these areas that we know and you know, just the idea of gender. And if that isn't a, a, a contemporary topic, uh, I don't know what is in terms of, of these issues and you know, what can we do about it and how do we address them? And, and then how does this, as he was saying, I think, how does this help you engage in your own faith? I think a lot of us, you know, we're, I don't say disgruntled, we use the words like deconstruction, we get frustrated, we, we point, can't figure it out, and it can tend to draw us away. And what I heard more than anything, going back to the very first word, is this, when I say the word, it really, it is that humming, it is, and it's not because it's the BW, it's that embodiment of the nature and the rhythm of the divine that is in within me and within you. And then I think to this point, you start talking like that, and all of a sudden you're like, what I hear I'm hearing it. I'm hearing these words I heard. It's other. It's not as focused on the right, wrong, morals, this, that, or the other thing. No, it's this stuff in the in the middle. And it's you and it's me and it's included. And so I hope, and this is a really nice in place to stop, especially with the coming on the, with the next episode, uh, because I recorded these backwards uh, just because of the time when it, so I'm trying to, I'm biting my tongue in a way, but it's exciting to see that coming up. Um, and then I also want to just, real quick footnote, Earlier, earlier you were talking about DDT. I found myself, I kind of giggled a little bit. I don't want to discount uh, anything in the spirit of the contemporary world. I don't, I wasn't trying to laugh at anybody that had any issues with that. It was just more of the idea of young, you know, eating lead paint and, you know, driving without a seatbelt kind of thing. So I, I definitely don't want to think that I wasn't laughing or poking for anybody who's had a real no, no. issue with that. So <laughs> just a little quick qualifier in the spirit of the 20, 22nd, 21st century or every century. Uh-huh. So, right. <laughs> so with, <laughs> So with all that said, we're going to wrap this up. Before we go, um, you know, please, first of all, thank you so much uh, for not only today, but the work. That thank you, Sean. Do. And tell everybody, we, and we're doing this in, t- in time for your books coming, your new books coming out. I, I will be buying it. Um, but tell us about how to find you, where to find more about you and these kinds of things. Uh, well, you know, I have a website, of course. And uh, that website is uh, A-B-W-O-O-N. That's A-V-O-N. Good way to remember it dot org o-r-g and you will find there many things news about the new book videos you can hear the the jesus's prayer the lord's prayer in aramaic just you know you click on a button you hear the whole thing and you know there's a there's a lot of things there you can download and, and that are resources for people most of it is free really yeah and reach out to me with the show if you want to if there's anything that you're looking for that i mentioned that uh, i'm more happy to point you to what i've been able to find as well uh, and just dive in and so with that again thank you so much for coming to the tent and appreciate thank you sean time. pleased pleased to speak with you and good luck with the rest of your podcast series thank you sir appreciate it all right with that we'll wrap up and we'll see you all next week thank you for listening thanks to david backhouse for the theme tune and to chris marchin for editing and all the other music this show only exists because of support from listeners like you if you have found something we made to be good or useful please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.